When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the first weekly Q&A. Every Friday, I'm going to be reading and responding to questions submitted by the YouTube channel Ultra Supporters. Um, this was just, I thought, maybe a fun way to give back to those who are contributing financially to the channel and also just to create some in individualized new content for everybody to consume. So I'm just going to go ahead and get started with these. Um, because it's kind of a new thing. We don't have that many ultra supporters yet. So I've got four questions today. I can definitely get through all four. First question is from Vicki Kent. And the question is, this might sound silly or even ridiculous, but I'm going to ask anyway, how to tell the difference between anxiety and excitement? I know I said this already in the, in the discussion thread, but first I just want you to know that's not a silly or ridiculous question. Anxiety and excitement are actually really similar emotions. They both kind of involve the nervous system and activation to some degree of the fight or flight response, because in situations provoking anxiety or excitement, both often involve some level of like energy or physical expenditure on our part. Both are probably going to create like at least a mild adrenaline rush, right? And a lot of physiological and emotional changes associated with that. In addition to kind of some shared pathways in the mind and the body. I also just think like a lot of things that are exciting are also a little bit scary or stressful and vice versa, right? So we might be talking about very similar situations or very similar stimuli. And so, yeah, I just, I don't think that's a silly question at all. In fact, I've heard many people say that they have a hard time differentiating between those two emotions and that especially you know, if you have an anxiety disorder or even just an above average amount of anxiety in general, where that can potentially become kind of problematic is if you start to become afraid of things that excite you, right? Like if you start trying to avoid or stay away from anything that you find kind of stimulating or, or interesting, because if those signals kind of get tripped up in your brain, you might end up, you know, not wanting to do things that are potentially really fun or enjoyable for you. I don't know that I have like a 100% foolproof answer to this question because I think it's a very personal thing. But at least for me, the biggest difference between anxiety and excitement is the presence or absence of positive emotionality involved in the situation. In other words, like in, in, in both, I am feeling probably that nervousness, right? And I am feeling you know, maybe some like sweating or, or muscle tension or things like that. But is there a part of me that's like, that thinks it's going to be fun, right? right? Like, am I kind of looking forward to it? And am I feeling like this is gonna be kind of a mixed thing? Like this might be hard, this might be stressful, but I also think it's gonna be really cool. Or is it just something that I'm kind of dreading and don't really have any positive emotionality around it? Um, like to give you an example, uh, I gave a I gave a pretty big presentation recently, a community presentation to a much larger group of people than I normally do. And that was excitement to me because I like to talk, right? I mean, obviously, I like to present. I like to 
um, share my thoughts and ideas with people, but it's also stressful. I mean, you know, I, I, I do public speaking semi-regularly, but I still get nervous about it. So there's a part of me that's like, ooh, what if you screw it up and stuff? So it's kind of a hybrid of the two. But but there was some level of, you know, awareness that once I get started and once I get comfortable, I will probably enjoy this thing. Whereas the last thing is just the first thing that comes to mind that I remember just being really stressed out about in a way where there was no excitement whatsoever. I actually gave this example on the channel before was driving to Chicago at night. I'm just not I'm not a city guy. I'm not a I, I don't really feel comfortable in like high traffic situations. Now, the Chicago trip itself would be excitement, right? There was a mix of like stress and anticipation and enjoyment. But the drive, there's there's no excitement about the drive itself. The drive was just purely unpleasant. I mean, other than just, you know, the most basic level, like getting to spend time with my family. So I think that's the main thing I'd be looking for is, is there some amount of positive emotionality also present in the experience? Are you also feeling like kind of joyful or is there anticipation? Um, is there a party that kind of wishes this thing was happening now versus is it just kind of pure like fear or stress or avoidance? I think the positive emotionality absence or presence of it is going to be what helps you differentiate between I am excited about this thing. I would like to do this thing. And I just kind of have some stress or nervousness about it versus like, I really don't want to do this thing at all. Great question, Vicky. Uh, thank you for asking it. Next question comes from JD Babes 33. And she wants to know what made you decide to start doing YouTube videos and how do you prepare your videos each week? I'm pretty sure that you do your videos in one take. So that's a lot to say all at once and plan for. Um, I actually started doing, technically, I started doing YouTube videos um, like three and a half years ago. Those videos were so bad that I deleted them. <laughs> to be honest with you, I made in like mid to late 2020, I think. I made, that's when I started this channel. I made like four videos and they were really short and really low quality. I don't even remember what they were about. And, you know, predictably for a brand new YouTuber with no production values and no one knows who they are, you know, they got like 10 views and I kind of got frustrated with it. And I said, nah, it's not because they took me a long time to make. I had no idea what I was doing. So I kind of just got frustrated and quit. And then in um, probably like January of 2023, I decided to start a podcast and the only way I knew how to record a podcast was to record it on my camera, on my phone, and then extract the audio. And I figured as long as I'm doing, I, I think for like three or four weeks, I made a separate podcast and video and I thought, this is stupid. Like, let me just record one thing. And as long as I'm making a podcast, I might as well just also like upload the video to YouTube which is kind of funny because of course my YouTube channel ended up being way more successful than the podcast, at least so far. Um, but as far as like what got me to the point of wanting to do it, that that's actually a really important question because I think this is how a lot of kind of big things in our lives work, which is we maybe have had the idea for a while or, you know, we've wanted to do it for a while. We've been encouraged to do it for a while. Um, I've had a lot of people tell me I should have a podcast and, and sometimes in our minds, we have sort of this mental threshold that we have to reach. We have to get some certain amount of like motivation or encouragement. And until you reach this threshold, nothing happens. And at some point you just get enough motivation or drive or encouragement that you're like, okay, I'm just going to do it. Because I remember the exact moment 
that I decided to start the podcast and the YouTube channel. And it was this guy on Instagram who I've been talking to for a while about just, he was a mental health provider. And, and literally, I think his entire message is like, you should have a podcast. So it's not like he said it differently or I had a super important relationship with him or anything. It was just like he was the magical, you know, seventh caller or whatever. I, I don't know how many people said it. But for some reason, that was like, I needed some certain repetition, some certain number of people to tell me you should do this thing. I think you'd be good at it. And and that was like my magic number. And as soon as he said that, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. And I recorded my first episode, I think that same day. Um, and from there, like what kept me going, I think was just, I'm not 100% sure what kept me going, actually, because it certainly wasn't... Um, a rapid success. I mean, technically it was, but it, it, you know, the first few months, you know, I think I had like one or two comments. Um, I think I just thought it was kind of fun, honestly. Like I knew it was going to take a while to get going and I was okay with that. Um, so it was just reaching that threshold. You know, I think we need some certain amount of encouragement to do hard things in our lives. And sometimes it's just like a right place, right time. And some person gives you just that last push that you needed to get something going. So really just being patient with myself and waiting till I felt ready or semi ready. As far as how I prepare for these, like, honestly, I, I really, for the most part, don't. Um, for the past uh, probably two or three months, I have started I have this video ideas notebook. Some of you message me sometimes with ideas for content. And if I ever say, oh, I'll put that in the notebook, that means I'll, I'll write it in here as a header. So I can show you some of these. I haven't done. <laughs> Here's a good example of how I don't always prepare at all. My video on fantasy worlds and maladaptive daydreaming. Um, what angle? There's my notes for that video. I had none. I know that some of you might be listening to this as a podcast. I literally didn't take any. So sometimes I just sit down and talk and I record. That's not always the case, especially if I'm making like a more technical video. So my video on prolonged grief disorder, for example, I wanted to make sure I covered the, you know, the symptoms and, and such and the treatments appropriately. Um, so I did have, you can see I had a few notes there. They're probably not readable on my webcam. Um, but yeah, it's somewhere in between. I think of stuff in the shower and then I get out and start recording versus I make 8, 10, 12 bullet points. My thing is... I really only want to cover topics that I already understand, you know, and I know I've said this before, but I don't ever want this channel to just be like a video version of a Wikipedia page, basically, where I'm just reciting random facts about random mental health conditions. I am going to restrict topics on this channel, at least when it's just me, when I'm covering something by myself to either things that I have a lot of personal experience with, like I've struggled with it or things that have come up often enough in therapy. And I've worked with a lot of people dealing with this thing that through them, I feel like I understand it well enough to speak to it. Um, and so I, I really typically don't need to do a lot of prep work or a lot of notes because this is my life. You know, these are things that I either live with or talk about with people, you know, like eight hours a day. Um, and so I'm very fortunate in that I just, I don't have to do a lot of prep work for this. I just think about what I want to say and then I sit down and say it. Um, but I've really enjoyed doing that with you guys. And I'm, I'm so appreciative of my audience. I put my phone down and it went to sleep. What was my next question? 
Uh, Bubble Girl says, I have a question about managing mental health symptoms in the context of parenting small children. How do you manage your anxiety and or depression if the actions of your children trigger it in any way? It's a good question because they do. Um, It's something I struggle with. I worry that my ups and downs will result in my kids struggling with either vicarious intergenerational trauma and or emotional childhood neglect as adults. So one thing that jumps out to me right away about that question is that you are putting a lot of pressure on yourself. You know, when you're using words like intergenerational trauma, you're making the stakes very high, right? And don't get me wrong, they are. I mean, when you're a parent, that is a tremendous responsibility and and your role in their lives, of course, is hugely important. But I think that one of the ways we can best manage our own mental health symptoms as parents is to not be too hard on ourselves and not put, you know, like perfectionistic or catastrophic expectations on yourself. And this might be a little bit of an overgeneralization, but I'm going to go so far as to say that anyone who even knows the term intergenerational trauma and knows what that means probably has a very low risk of causing intergenerational trauma in their own children, because it's typically the people who don't understand the effects that, you know, our mental health and our behaviors can have on our children. Some parents just really don't realize how how important they are and how much of a difference they can make, right? And if you're someone who grew up with parents who did struggle with something and were affected tremendously by that, and, and you not only, you know, understand that from your personal life and have that vocabulary, but are also concerned enough about your own children's mental health that you're asking a psychologist on YouTube how to not do it. Now, I know I don't know you. I would strong, like all, all that evidence suggests to me that you probably aren't going to traumatize your children because it tells me you're keeping this stuff at the forefront of your mind pretty consistently. Um and, and I suspect you will just intuitively and innately through your own understanding, probably not take action that would result in that. I'm not just trying to make you feel better. So I hope that doesn't sound like a cop out because the flip side to that coin is you're absolutely right that depression and anxiety, you know, they do impact us as parents. They impact us in every domain of our lives. For me, um, it mostly shows up in just... It, being concerned that I'm not providing, you know, either the optimal quality of experience for them or, or not teaching them essential or fundamental skills. And, and something that helps me is trying, and it's hard because I'm 40 years old and I, my recall of what the world looks like through a child's eyes is, is, you know, is a long time ago for me, but I know from experience and also just from talking with my own parents that, a lot of the things they were really worried about and a lot of the times when they felt that way about me and and their parenting of me, I look back on those times very fondly. Um, I won't, I won't be specific because I don't want to air all my parents' business, but you know, there were certain things that they worried about in certain periods of time in our lives that, that they worried about. And a lot of those are some of my happiest memories. Like I I will say one, because this, I think this one's not too personal. I know they worried a little bit about, isolation with me because we spent a lot of time in places where there weren't other kids or I didn't see other families a lot. Um, 
especially like my grandparents' farm and then our place up in northern Minnesota where we were just kind of on a lake in like a national forest. And those are without a doubt my happiest childhood memories. Did they affect me socially? Maybe. I mean, I definitely didn't have the greatest social skills. I think that's multifactorial. Um, but to avoid rambling here and getting too much into my own childhood, I, I, I think that the way we see things is often not the way they see things, right? We're, we're looking at it from the lens of an adult and we're comparing a moment that they're, you know, an experience that they're having. We're trying to look 10 steps ahead and say, you know, what's this going to mean for them when they're an adolescent and when they're an adult and is this good or bad? And, and children by default are usually pretty mindful beings because they're not burdened with all this, all these long-term concerns that we have. And, and just remembering that like, something that looks not great to you might be great to them. We, we grew up, um, the first place we lived in in Minnesota, I guess technically was the second, but I, I don't really remember the first very well. Um, we had this really old, like crappy hot water heater and it, it technically we had hot water, but I remember it, it had a pilot light that would just go out all the time. And I, I think, I don't know how my parents felt about that, but I know like for me, if my kids didn't have hot water in their bath, I'd be like, oh no, like I'm, I'm failing them as a parent. I should be able to provide them with hot water. I'm a provider. But when I look back on my childhood, I remember my mom, we'd all three take baths. We were very young and we'd all be in the bath. And um, my mom would come in with like a, a pot of really hot water that she warmed up on the stove and she'd dump it in the middle of the tub and we'd all like get away from it because it was so hot. But then as soon as we adapted, then we all rushed to it because it felt really good. I remember my dad saying something, you know, he grew up on, on a hog farm. And I remember him saying, you know, they'd have to go out and work in the bitter winter. And he and his sister would come in and sit in front of the fireplace, you know, like, like probably dangerously cold, honestly. And they'd sit in front of the fireplace till they got too hot. And then they'd lay on the ground to get cold and then, it, you know, back and forth. And things that we might consider as parents, like that's a hardship or an inconvenience or a problem. And it, it might end up being one of their most cherished memories. Um, so really just remembering that, like, you don't ever know what this is going to mean to them. That was a, I took 10 minutes to say something probably very simple, but you don't know what it will mean to them. And so try not to judge what you look like in their eyes from your eyes, because you're looking at yourself as an adult and they're looking at you as a child. I hope that makes sense. I could say a lot more about that and I might make more content about that eventually. Um, fourth and final question for today, Emily Farley says, this one is about psychology in general. For children who have really active imaginations, what would be the defining line of typical and not typical in regards to believing their toys or stuffed animals are real. I was just wondering if you've come across any research or information on this. I'll give you a little disclaimer here. Developmental psychology, I would say, is definitely not my specialty. Um, probably not even an area I'm super knowledgeable in. I don't work a ton with kids. So I am, I am probably not probably, there's no probably in this. I am definitely not the most qualified person to answer this. So I'm going to, this one, I'm going to approach more from a personal rather than a psychological perspective. The example you gave about stuffed animals was interesting because I remember when I was a kid, I believed that my stuffed animals were sentient, like for quite a long time, probably a almost embarrassingly long period of time. I want to say 
maybe till I was nine or 10 years old, like longer, probably longer than is considered healthy in most cases. And I, I, I very much believe that like when I couldn't see them, they would, you know, communicate with one another and and do things. I, I had a really high level of like probably magical and fantastical thinking when I was a kid. I don't know if that was good, bad, indifferent. I just know that it was. And it's interesting because my son is 10 and he's like me in the fact that he has a giant stuffed animal collection. Um, but he appears to very clearly understand that they are not, you know, real. They're not alive. They're real. They physically exist. Um, but he, I remember him saying, even when he was like, I think six or seven years old saying like, it would be cool if they were real or I wish they were real. And so in the process of voicing that, you know, clearly indicating to me that he knows they're not, I, I don't know why that is like, I, like he's, he's very different than me in that regard. Same with like, um, like, you know, video games and stuff like that. I remember thinking like, magic and superpowers were real and if i trained hard enough i might be able to like shoot a fireball out of my hand or something like that and and again he very obviously understands that that is not the case um i'm not sure why that is <sighs> socialization might play a role in that and this kind of maybe goes back to the, to the other question you know i didn't I didn't spend a ton of time around kids when I was growing up and and he probably has more socialization than me. I don't know if that's the difference or not. Some of it's just probably personality too, you know, like thinking styles. I've just, I've always been someone who's really prone to optimistic and kind of magical type thinking. And he's not, I think a lot, a lot of times with questions about like what's normal or abnormal too, those questions can be really misleading. Because if you if you take the word normal at face value, normal typically would imply you know, statistically average, right? Like normal would imply what do most people do, and and that would be thought of as normal. But we also often conflate normal with healthy, and that can be a huge mistake, because what the majority does isn't necessarily healthy. A good example of that is sleep. The normal amount of sleep um, that an adult in America gets is six and a half hours a night. So if you're sleeping six and a half hours a night, you are statistically normal. Does that mean you're doing a good job with sleep? Well, I don't want to sound judgy about that because you might be trying really hard and just, and just struggling with insomnia. Um, but does that mean that that's the right amount of sleep or the optimal or the healthy amount of sleep for a person to get? No, we, we know that six and a half hours is, is not enough for over 99% of adults that that is actually below what we need. So that's just one of many examples where normal and healthy are going to be two very different things, right? Um, and so I think when you're trying to figure out like, are my kids normal or not? Don't go by statistics, you know, don't go by like, what is the mean of childhood behavior? Because at least in America, um, a lot of our norms are unhealthy. And, and, and so if you, if you raise your kids in a way where you want them to be like most other people, you're probably actually going to teach them some not great patterns and habits, at least as far as their mental health is concerned. Um, this is a, I hope this is not getting rambling and or a cop out, but I would say at the end of the day, it's a decision you need to make for yourself. And I, I, I wouldn't make the decision based on statistics, meaning like, you know, say your kid has a really active, say your kid's like me, right? They have a really active imagination and you poll a hundred parents 
And 95% of those parents say, by the time my kid was that age, they knew their stuffed animals uh, were not like living beings. And you might really worry and be like, oh no, like I'm in this, I'm, I'm in this 5% who has this kind of atypical experience. And our brains tend to equate, again, we tend to equate normal with healthy. And then we tend to equate, you know, abnormal or atypical with bad or unhealthy, but that's not necessarily the case. And I think the best thing you can do as a parent is look at it on an individualized basis and say, okay, maybe my kid is statistically, every kid is statistically atypical in some domain of their life. But do I think it's bad? Do I think this is harming their their relationships, their mental health, their quality of life? Or do I think this is just who they are? Do I think this is just, this is just a part of them and a part of their uniqueness and, and maybe just something to accept about them? And I wouldn't worry about changing something just because it's abnormal unless you actually see like some harm or some problems uh, coming from it. I know that's not actually the question you asked, but that's the question I felt able to answer. So I changed your question a little bit so that I had a more intelligent answer to give. I hope that that's okay. Um, that was it for today. Just those four questions. Um, we'll do this again next week. And if you're interested in becoming a part of this, um, feel free to look into channel membership options. These would be, um, this is a, a Q and a, um, poll that I create every Sunday for ultra supporters. So, um, if you want to be a part of this, that would be awesome. However, the video itself. So my answers to these questions are going to permanently remain a 100% free part of my channel. So this is not meant to be me trying to get money out of you to get access to me. It's actually just a way to give back to people who are already supporting me in the first place, because I very much appreciate that, as well as just give back extra content to all my subscribers, because you guys are what makes this happen. And I appreciate each and every one of you, regardless of your membership status. Take care, and I will talk to you next time.